back to Game of Thrones 2, Electric Bookaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. Very special week. Electric Bookaloo is celebrating our 500th episode. Can you believe that? You shouldn't, because it's not true. I don't keep track of these things. I've got no idea how many episodes I've done of this. Why would that be important? This week, we're covering Danny's third POV chapter in Clash of Kings. With me is historian, professor, Dr. Andrew Howe. After my conversation with Andrew, I include an excerpt of my conversation with Jan Wilson. Without further ado, here is Dr. Howe. Andrew, have you seen the most recent Dune film, Dune Part 1? Yes, I have. How did you like that? I I found it uh, extraordinary visually. Yeah, me too. I mean, I think it was it was very, very well done, very beautiful. Uh, you know, I found myself, even though I've read the book you know, probably close to 40 years ago, I uh, have seen multiple versions of Dune. Uh, visually, I, I felt that this was, I, w- I was still stunned and uh, um, moved by it. I, I felt that some of the characters uh, perhaps uh, were not played uh, maybe as I expected, having immersed myself in this world before. Got it. And, yeah. and uh, you know, I felt kind of where they, uh, you know, I think they wasted uh, Dr. Dr. Yui, for instance. <laughs> sure. Didn't, yeah. yeah, I didn't really sort of, <laughs> that that turned out to be a very inconsequential character, um, un- unless there will be flashbacks in the next, uh, in the next film. Uh, and, you know, I, I, somehow chopping the film up into, you know, into several parts, uh, I thought uh, was unfortunate, although, you know, given the uh, the contemplation of the visual aspect of it, I can understand you can't have a, you know, four and a half hour movie. Yeah, I loved it. I loved it. And I didn't have really much of a relationship with the original Dune film or the original Dune book. Mm-hmm. Um. I was just recently listening to one of the people who worked on the script for that movie. Oh, interesting. And that person was describing a double strange world problem. And I thought that that was a great way into this chapter. So I'll just describe to you the problem. All right. So if you have like a, you know, Wizard of Oz situation, you've got someone from our world going to a strange world. And the plot basically develops because that person is not familiar with this new world. You know, antics ensue, right? Or you've got a different thing. It's like the the movie Splash, where it's like someone from a different world comes to our world. And there's friction there, right? Quite, quite literally, a fish out of water in that case. Exactly. So you got a fish out of out of water, basically, and that's kind of like antics ensue because of that. What it's really hard to do is to have a double strange world problem where you have like Paul Atreides, who's from an alien, you know, culture, alien to us anyway, uh, arrive on the desert planet, and that's a that's a has a whole culture of its own. How do you create the plot when the viewer, to the viewer, both worlds are strange, right? That's the double strange world problem. Mm, mm, Interesting. Okay. So, and that's really hard to do. And I think Dune did that as well as you could do that, right? Um, 
But this chapter has a double strange world problems because you've got Danny who sort of is a fish out of water when we first meet her, right? She's she's kind of learning Dothraki culture for the first time. But now she's in Karth. And so you've got a fantasy narrative where Danny represents Targaryens and so far in the story Targaryens are pretty exotic, right? They we we're just getting little glimpses into the windows of their culture. Um they're really kind of like a almost a dead culture at this point. Uh except for Danny. She thinks she's the last one on on earth. Right. I mean, she doesn't yeah, realize yeah. there's a few others knocking around, but yeah. Right. And so she kind of represents this strange culture from Westerosi eyes. But then, of course, Karth is also a, a strange world, strange new world, I suppose. Yeah, it, it, and very and one that's very uh, clearly uh, marked as uh, sort of Eastern exotic. I think so, and I, I think this is supposed to be at least nod to Constantinople. I think. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um. So I don't know. I mean, I was I was sort of like really fascinated by all of the texture of the city and the politics of the city. In a very short space of time, Martin is trying to introduce an ancient and textured culture with lots of competing political problems uh, from Danny's point of view, uh, which, of course, is a limited POV point of view. Um, How did this work for you? We're getting geared up for the 6th Annual Summer Badass Fest. And while we're working on a slate of apex badass films to enjoy, we've got an early action-packed announcement to make. Just like last year, we're kicking off badass season with a live movie watch and podcast recording. We've rented out a theater for connoisseurs of action films and bald move fans that just want to have a great time. Unlike last year, this year's movie is top secret. Hush, hush. No hints. Except, it's incredibly badass. It stars an absolute icon of the genre. We're willing to bet most of you haven't seen it, and it's going to be an incredible viewing experience with a packed house of bald movers. Those of you who came to last year's screening of Total Recall know what a party it was. And those of you who didn't, <laughs> now's your chance to experience it. Meet me and Jim. Order some custom movie-themed drinks at the theater's full bar. Then watch us record the full podcast for the movie. We reserved a venue over twice the size as last year, but seating is still limited. It's happening Friday, 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 June 21st at 7 p.m. in our hometown of Cincinnati. Get full details and buy tickets at baldmove.com slash live. Cincinnati's actually a pretty great city to visit, and we've got lots of details for side adventures on our event page as well. The Reds are playing the Boston Red Sox in their fantastic Riverside Stadium. The thrills of Kings Island just minutes away, and I'll be leading a kayak trip down the scenic Little Miami River on Saturday. Again, get full details and get your tickets now on our Badass Fest 6 page at baldmove.com slash live live. Yeah, I mean, I think you you bring up uh, a very uh, interesting 
real world parallel uh, of uh, a place like Constantinople or Damascus, uh, which sort of is at a crossroads of trade and yeah. therefore has it's kind of a little bit of a melting pot, but it's far enough east that uh, it is sort of marked as uh, uh, exotic. In going back and rereading this chapter, I very much thought of the C.S. Lewis book, The Horse and His Boy, uh, hmm. and the the the, um, the descriptions that Lewis has of Tashban. Uh, which, by the way, that would be another double strange world problem, right? I, I, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yes. And but the difference is that that you're right. Martin steeps it in this tremendously complex political landscape that Lewis largely ignores, you know, uh, because essentially all callermen or whatever uh, I can't uh, remember exactly the the term, you know, are are sort of marked as 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 evil, uh, or at least you know uh, impediments to uh, to the Narnians, um, you know the. Well, he, he no, I think the, that there is something of a old school Orientalism going on there, right? Absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, I'm not saying that Martin avoids that old school Orientalism, but he at least is attempting to uh, give complexity and texture to the political landscape that we see with the the old nobility, and then you have the new merchant classes which are growing in power. I think there's three there's three of them, right? And then mm-hmm. the warlocks. I mean, there's these five competing. One using magic as their as their tool for power. Three using commerce, and one just using their their entrenched power through their names. Yeah, I usually save this this little bit for the end of the podcast, but I'll just mention it now. So we're introduced to the pureborn, and then against the pureborn are the merchant princes. And among the merchant princes, there are three different factions. The thirteen. Uh, from which Doxos comes, the Guild of Spices, and the Tourmaline Brotherhood. Not only that, all right, so you got already four factions mentioned, and then you've got the Warlocks mentioned, and you also see, like, there, there's a there's also a Guild of Assassins called the, the Sorrowful Men. So he's just throwing tons and tons of political factions uh in a very short space of time here yeah and then there's quaith and i can't remember what what group she belongs to with the red lacquer masks and then of course there's an yet another group that that is there but it's kind of in the background and it probably represents the vast majority of karth which are the servants right uh, the, yeah. the, the servant the servant class we don't really get to see much of them uh, but they're, you know, they obviously make this place go. Uh, and I, I, I do think it's very interesting that he, you know, invokes both spice and, you know, precious um, gemstones through the, the the ancient guild of spicers. And also and the fruit. Terminal, brother. Oh, and fruit as well. Interesting. Yeah, yeah there's, there's a mention of, of a persimmon and a pomegranate. It's sort of like... Um, well, know, there's like a ritual, a ritual persimmon. Yeah. At one point, she's got to put on silk. As well, so yes. this is all sort of like a menagerie, and, of... and invokes the, the, the you know the uh, Great Silk Road of uh, of antiquity in in our world. Yeah, so Danny's kind of trying to learn to play politics in this place. I mean, even she sees that Doxos is not all that he seems, right? You know, yes. it's, it's pretty obvious. Like he's proposing marriage, but 
why? <laughs> you know? Yeah. What, what's he the seems, motive here? He seems to have no attraction to her whatsoever, but what is he attracted to then, right? Right. And, and you know, there, there is even a mention, like, even Danny's a bit suspicious of his sexuality. Yes. And the reason why is that all of the other men, Jorah notably among them, can't take their eyes off her when she's dressed in the traditional garb, which exposes one of her breasts. But Doxos will not, he does not care. <laughs> he doesn't, he's like, he's spitting a good game, we, we could say. Yes. But yeah, he, yeah. he's got, uh, my, my son would say, he does not got Riz. Oh, that's a new, that's a new one to me. I'll have to ask my uh, <laughs> uh, niece what that means. <laughs> yeah. And in that way, I kind of thought he, he was, had some interesting analogs to someone like Varys. Mm, mm-hmm. Because he's not from the city. He's sort of up-jumped, right? He's he's sort of originally from lower classes. He's not pure-born or whatever. But he's sort of, by hook or crook, found himself in a place of power here. And also there is the question of his sexuality, right? Yeah, yeah um, and, and I think he's... Uh... Um, looking for more for ways to increase and magnify that that power. Doxos is this city's version of Varys, Varys slash Littlefinger, right? He's kind of got a little bit of both of these two. Yeah, and 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 Illyrio as well. I think is sure is another analog. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, yeah. You using his wealth to move things politically, right? Yeah. So he's he's an interesting character, and. Danny realizes that that she needs him. Like with she says without him I'd be lost. Because he's sort of new to the city in a way. And so he can kind of interpret things for her and he's providing her wealth and gifts and political advice and he's cajoling the right people and with it, you know with wit and his wallet. He's able to get her in the right rooms with the right people. And yet, clearly, he has ulterior motives. And it, it's pretty clear to everyone that he has ulterior motives. Even Jorah and Quaith. And seem, seems to me that uh, it's almost like, I need a... This is a place full of devils, but I need I need a devil that at least pretends to be on my side for a little bit. Yeah, I think you see Danny growing up a little bit in this chapter and beginning to realize uh, that, you know, her dragons do attract a lot of attention and may um, allow her to um, curry favor with certain people, but they, these people have expectations and gifts are uh, maybe free, but they come with strings attached. And yeah. she's starting to realize the, the, the limitations uh, that uh, uh, she faces. I mean, at one point she's wondering, well, you know, I, I can't use the dragons. As, the dragons are an oddity at this point. Um, eventually, I'll be able to use them in a threatening manner. But how do I train them? <laughs> right. You know? Right. Uh, she, yeah. she sort of has that thought. Um, so I, I think you're starting to see. I mean, she's still a little naive. It's Jorah that sort of teases out the um, the custom where you have to give a gift. And that th- yeah, this is that's really important, this is probably what right? Doxos is 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 angling uh, for. Yes. You know, but you, you start to see her. St- you know, this this is an early chapter, I think, where you're starting to see her have a lot of these thoughts herself, rather than just being told, "This is what you need to do." 
Right, right. I, I want to talk about the gift-giving aspect here, but let's let me read my uh, synopsis first. Sure. Danny implores Doxus to aid her in her conquest, but to no avail. She recalls her ineffectual plea to the pureborn who have refused her. She resists Doxus' many advances, but sees him as her only lifeline within the city. After leaving him, her palaquin stops... Or palaquin? Do you say palaquin or palaquin? I've never been sure. Okay. <laughs> right. e- either one works for me. Okay. All right. After leaving him, her palaquin stops to see a display of sorcery. Quaith warns her to leave the city and explains that dragon magic is a generative force for sorcery. She tells Danny a riddle that Danny interprets as advice to go to Ashai. Once back at her room, Jorah warns her that Doxos wants her dragons. She decides to go to Pietpri. I want to talk about gift giving uh, before we do anything else, because you mentioned that earlier. Um, this is kind of a big deal in this. It, as Westerosi folk deal with Essos, there is a common gift giving problem that we see in this story. Yes. And the first and the main one, the, the biggest one is that there's a misunderstanding between Viserys and Drogo about what it, what the promise of an army means. Viserys thinks that he has traded his sister for an army and he's like I'm ticked off that this guy didn't make good. He, he's marching all around Essos and I would like him to make good on this agreement that we made. Whereas Drogo feels like, no, you gave me a gift and I will just, I will give you a a gift in return, but I'll do it in my own time because that's how gifts are given. Right. Yeah. In other words, Viserys thinks that this is sort of a transaction, whereas Drogo has a much different view of the arrangement. And here again, we have Danny in a situation where the gift giving is it's lavish. Yet there's a sort of a political nuance to it. Well, it, you know, as as you uh, mentioned, uh, this is very common throughout A Song of Ice and Fire. I mean, we're even given backstories of people long since dead, you know, who tra- from Westeros who traveled you know, to Pentos and Volantis and, uh, you know, uh, were treated as sort of heroes almost. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. but, but, but then, you know, there's a, there's an expectation. I mean, even Jorah's, Jorah's, uh, wife, uh, his second, uh, wife, uh, who was, I believe a Hightower. Um, yeah, I forget her name too, but I know who you're, t- the, the one who was, who, whose appetite for finer the finer things of life, yeah, drove him into ruin. Right? Yeah, Le- so. Leon, it's something like Leoness. It's not Lioness, but it's something like that. Uh, you know, she she ends up essentially a concubine in uh, one of the eastern cities. I can't remember which one it was. Lise, maybe, maybe uh, so. Yeah. yeah, and you know, she she achieved her her. She was given you know wonderful gifts, but. There was there, there there was sort of an expectation of a price. Now that's not political necessarily. That's more transactional. Uh, but you're right. You know, when it comes to other aspects, I, I think we see this in Marine, 
uh, as well. And, and, and you know, the, the more I read into this chapter, the more I realized that Karth is kind of a training ground for uh, Marine in, cert in certain ways, particularly with the caste system that Danny must navigate. The only difference mm -hmm. is here she has no power. When she's in Marine, she's she's in charge, but she still has to sort of understand the caste system and work within it. And I think the pureborn are, you know, one sort of level of kind of they'll reach out a hand and one with one hand and stab you in the back with the other. But I think it's important to re remember where Doxos comes from. The pure born got to where they were by being born pure. Doxos, yeah, they're upper crust. They're upper crust. I mean, it doesn't. They, yeah, the way that they're going to navigate their situation is they're going to do whatever they can to maintain power. But, right? but they start out with it. As you point out, Doxos and maybe some of the other 13, certainly at some point, were very explicitly told, the Do or at least Doxos tells us, that he started out with nothing. Hmm. And mm -hmm. the, the TV show doubles down on that uh, by implying that, that he's a character from the Summer Isles by employing a, a black actor, right? You know, that, that, right, that, that right. he's, you know, not from Karth originally, but that his success is based purely on his acumen, his business acumen, his political acumen, and perhaps his willingness to, uh, uh, I don't want to say fight dirty, but, uh, you know, he's he's going to do what it takes to to win, in essence. And mm -hmm. I think we see that borne out in in later later chapters. Of course, he doesn't end up winning, but this marriage proposal that he's making has a very calculated, specific political goal. And that political goal is to use this custom to gain one of her dragons to uh, increase his position and power in Karth. Yeah. The tradition is that men and women's wealth remains independently owned by the men and a women which uh, which is they are married which right? is which is fairly progressive as far as this right. world is concerned it's a much different view than the westerosi view right yeah so, absolutely but and this is what jora knows that danny has to consider it's like well there is also this thing that if you if you get to the wedding ceremony you can ask for one gift from your uh, spouse, which cannot be and denied. It cannot be denied. And what Jorah says is it's got to be one thing. And if you ask for a ship, you'll get one ship. And if he asks for a dragon, he'll get one dragon. And guess what is much more valuable, right? Yeah. It's sort of a, a asymmetrical, uh, marital warfare, you might say. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that there's a sense in which, Danny's thinking, well, how can I use this to my advantage? But as Jorah says, all he needs is one dragon and he can absolutely rule that city. You know, this is the one thing that he's missing. He's risen pretty far, but he'll never be pureborn. Right. Yes. He, so he's if, one of the 13. Uh, he's one of 13 out of five factions that are competing for power. <laughs> right. He's risen a yeah. very long way, but he's he's come up against Karth doesn't have a king. Uh, uh -huh. Karth has this old, you know, landed group of families called the Pureborn. He can never be one of them. Uh, this is the only way he's going to be able to. Uh, you know, it, it, he, he does this very quickly. You know, they they hear stories of the dragons 
and I think he's one of three people in the previous chapter that shows up to to see her. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right, you know. Yeah. So I mean, he, I I think Quaith is one of them too. And I don't know if it's Piat Pre, but it's one of the. I think it's Piat. It Pri, is actually yeah, Piat yeah. Pre. So they, you know, they all have different. Quaith is intrigued um, because you know she's into prophecy. The other two are trying to have already figured out. Hey, th- we can use this to our advantage. Well, yeah, and I'm glad that you mentioned Quaith because this is really the first time we have it said explicitly that the dragons are powerful magic because they're magical beasts, but there is sort of um, an environmental effect caused by the birth of dragons. And the way that she does is she, she points to this fire mage who's able to do this amazing feat of magic. And she says, you know, before you arrived... That guy could barely do anything. You are a tremendous source of power. And this, you know, Dan, Danny kind of laughs this off, but this is kind of an, the first time that we have this said explicitly that, you know, how, I guess, I guess how, how dragons affect the entire landscape of Westeros and Essos. Yeah, we start seeing it in book two, you know, the production of wildfire. Uh, they're not sure why sure. wildfire is all of a sudden, uh, you know, it's easier to make or, or, or whatnot. Uh, that's because of, you know, attributed to uh, the fact that there's dragons, uh, Thoros of Mir. And it, actually there is sort of a, uh, uh, this fire mage and Thoros of Mir are, I think, kind of linked here uh, through what you just said. Because oh, interesting. I think the implication in this chapter, at least for me when I read it, is that the fire mage was in league with the cut purses and right. he, he, you know, I mean, yeah. he's basically, and I think this is probably a, a metaphor for uh, what's going on with Doxos, you know, uh, the marriage proposal is just a smokescreen for what he's really, you know, right. for the acquisition of, of wealth, except for the fire mage and the cut purses are doing it on a much smaller scale. You know, he does this weird thing where he tries to climb this, fire ladder everybody ooze and ahs and in the fire mage gets a cut of the i think that's that's implied yeah i think i think so i the he kind of creates this sort of distraction basically almost pyrotechnic display yeah and is able to climb into the sky on the fire ladder. using a fire ladder and then disappears and the cut versus with one hand point yeah and with the other hand, use their knives to cut the purse strings. And, and that they're actually in league with the fire mage. Yeah. But now if he has real power because of Danny's dragons, much like Thoros of Mir sort of moved from being this kind of drunken charlatan figure who was like basically it. using his yeah, ability like to kind of put a sword on fire, uh, you know, to, to basically ingratiate himself so he could drink and, and, and carouse. But now he's a true believer, much much like this fire mage is now. Well, he's got real power. He can bring people back from the dead. Well, that, yeah, now he can. As of I think, is it book? It's book two where we we, we well, start. We have a mention of the. We have the first mention of this of Beric Dondarrion. Uh, well, Arya has this. Uh, is hearing rumors of Dondarrion at Harrenhal, and basically the rumors are. Well, this guy claims to have killed them here, and that guy claims to have killed them there. Yeah. And it's sort of, if you can r- sort of read in retrospect, you know that 
oh, he these aren't rumors. He really did die in all of these places. What we don't have is we don't know that he's got this fire mage alongside him that's bringing him back to life every time. Yeah, so, you know, this is all happening in, in, in uh, uh, A Clash of Kings, and uh, um, it's happening all over the world, you know, uh, Planetos, at least yeah. at least the parts of Planetos <laughs> that, we're, right. that we're reading about. Um, right. Yeah, this is a global phenomenon. So that's an it, it's sort of an interesting introduction to that. And along these same lines, this is about the same point in the book where John finds finds a cache of dragon glass at the Fist of the First Men. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, of course, in this chapter, we have two mentions to dragon glass, and one is that of all of these seekers that come to visit Danny, they all bring a token of wealth. And so she's just got piles of treasure at her feet, which she's ended up, you know, she's ending up selling it off because she needs the money. Everything except for a crown, which she uh, keeps, she just, which she is, keeps I, the crown. I think is, a you know, in this chapter where we're starting to see her becoming more, a little bit more politically savvy, we still see uh, old Danny, you know, the, yeah. because the crown really, all it is, is a symbol. It doesn't work that way that you put on a crown and people immediately. Um, I want to talk about that crown. Sure. Um, before I do that, I want to mention that what Quaith says is that that fire mage who's doing that amazing pyrotechnic display, she said just a few weeks ago, he couldn't even coax flame from dragon glass. Direct quote, she says, hardly wake fire from dragon glass. And that makes me think that I I was just thinking of dragon glass as sort of obsidian or something. That's how I've always viewed it. So I'm not sure what her reference. But she, Quay seems to think that the magical property in dragon glass in some way manifests as flame. And that this wouldn't be hard for someone to someone like this charlatan fire mage to do. So I don't know whether like he's just using wildfire to do it, or if this is really what dragon glass is supposed to do. There is also the issue of uh, glass candles, uh, right? Which, yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, and I, I don't know. You know, I've never really understood the mechanics of how that work. They talk about the 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 glass candles being black. So I've always assumed right. that they're made out of obsidian, and so they glow somehow with magic. I mean, <laughs> so I, I do think that there is another reference that might relate here. But yeah, we're not we're not given the George. One thing I love about this world is he doesn't answer all the questions, and I don't think he feels right. I don't think he feels the need to. You know, uh, some things are best. Well, he likes the rumors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I mean, because that's that's what a real. Uh, you know, I mean, that's what life would have been like in 1200, you know, uh, 1200 years ago right? <laughs> in, in a medieval world. Right. Uh, people didn't. There wasn't Wikipedia where you could just look up everything. I want to talk about this crown. So interesting to me. Um, she's just, she thinks, OK, well, it looks like the um, the Termaline Brotherhood give her a dragon shaped crown. It's the crown with like three dragon heads on them. Mm-hmm. It's very heavy. It, hurt, it hurts her to keep it on. You know, it's sort of too heavy for her neck to hold up. 
but she decides I'm going to keep it because Viserys sold my mother's crown and they called him a beggar. I'm going to keep this crown and they'll call me a queen. This is the first time we've heard any mention of Danny's mother. And so I, I did a little research on this and because I thought, well, where's Rhea? Where is she first mentioned? I think we've learned that her mother died in childbirth, you know, giving birth to her, right? On a on, stormy night. Yes, on a stormy night on Dragonstone. Yeah, but she is not named. Um, we don't see the name Rayla until the next book, Storm of Swords. So Danny's mother is sort of mentioned very briefly and not named. And this is the first kind of detail that we know about her. In, in other words, Danny's mother does not often occupy her thoughts, which makes sense because she never knew her mother. But when she thinks about, you know, what it means to be a Targaryen, she thinks about her brother. She thinks about her father. She thinks about, you know, her ancestry. She almost never thinks about her mother. So I thought that was an interesting detail to put in this particular chapter. Um, all that she knows is that her mother wore a crown, basically. Yeah, I, I sort of hadn't really thought about the um, the lack. That, I mean, because she's always talking about, she's always thinking about um, her father, the Mad King. Uh, she's thinking about her brother. She never met them either. Uh, in fact, yeah. they, they uh, did they predis, I'm, I'm trying to remember the order that things happen in Robert's Rebellion. Well, regardless, all three of them die about the same time, uh, but mm -hmm. she, she she never seems to dwell that much or think that much about her uh, about her mother. I never never sort of considered that before. Yeah, and so this is this chapter. She, she you know she mentions her mother's crown in passing. Still, we don't even have her named, and I thought that was sort of an interesting omission in her story. It's an interesting omission, particularly when you you think about the fact that. Uh, it, it sort of parallels her with uh, John, whose mother um, died in childbirth, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and Tyrion, whose mother di died in childbirth. And, you know, Tyrion thinks about his his mother, or the mother comes up in conversation, usually with Cersei, a little bit. Uh, and of course, there's a lot of discussion about John's mother and who she might have been. But here we get almost essentially none whatsoever. That's right. And I think that if we're if we piece together all the clues, you know, reading far, far ahead, Rayla is would be Jon Snow's biological grandmother. Uh, just to connect the dots there. Yes. Um, Doxos gives Danny a serpent's foot as among his many gifts. What is a serpent's foot? <laughs> <laughs> I, I refuse to speculate uh, what that might mean, but uh, yeah, I thought that was interesting as well. Uh, th there is a sort of an equivalent of a dragon in the East that's found on one of the islands. I can't remember. It's not a wyvern or a chi chimera, uh, but th th there there is another sort of winged serpent type. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, th that aren't nearly as big or fearsome as dragons, uh, but I, I think it, it's the one. It's it's the it's sort of like a lion dragon. I don't know. It's, it, there are other beasts that this might be uh, re referencing. Okay. <laughs> right. That's the PG 13. Right. So, That's the PG 13 uh, uh, <laughs> interpretation. 
uh-huh good very good save good save um i also wondered if possibly at this early stage in martin's writing he doesn't know exactly what to do with jack and hagar yet and the reason why i say that is that Early on in Arya's narrative, Jack and Hagar seems to be really concerned about paying back the Fire Lord. You know, the the god of flame or whatever. You mm. you know, you stole three lives from the, the the red god, and the red god wants the three lives back. In other words, he's very interested in the f- in almost relore worship. And at least that's how I read it. And this guild of assassins is in Carth, and they're called the Sorrowful Men because when they kill you, they say they're sorry. And so, and he calls them a guild of sacred assassins. It's almost like he hasn't quite invented the faceless men yet and decides to repurpose the idea later on. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, I don't know. It could be that. It is sort of the second clue that he, maybe he doesn't have the faceless men quite ironed out. Yeah, quite yeah. ironed out in his in his mind. Interesting. I I just okay. It's just a, another sort of version of the same thing, but further east and with a different uh, re- religious uh, mythology. Uh, mythology. But no, you might be right that this was something that kind of gave him an idea. Oh, I wish I could use that again, uh, but I'm going to have to. Uh, you know, gra- right. graph this new thing onto the story. Of, right. Uh, if we just sort of in-world explanation, I think we have to say, yeah, there are two different guilds of sacred assassins in this world, right? <laughs> but but as far as, you know, his, uh, Martin's world b- building specifically, you might be right that this uh, sort of gave him the idea, oh, that's how I yeah. can... Or he liked the idea and he wasn't sure where to use it yet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um because yeah, it, it always has struck me as odd. Is why is Jack and Hagar care that the, the 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 red god is paid back? And then of course I found this little detail in this chapter. I thought, oh, I don't think he's got the faceless men actually worked out yet. Um. Anyway, just a just a theory, I guess. Notable introductions in this chapter. We hear about the pureborn, the temple of memory. Keep the keeper of the long list, the opener of the door. These are all very ominous titles. Uh, the hall of a thousand thrones, the merchant princes. We already mentioned the, the three different factions of that. Um, the seekers that come to Danny with gifts, the warlocks. We've heard about them before. The sorrowful men, the fire mage. We've heard about Zorses before. Um, I think that Arya might see, maybe Arya sees a Zorse with the, the bloody mummers. I'm not sure, but she gets a Zorse and then <laughs> Doxos gives her tumbling monkeys and spitting snakes. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that, <laughs> that's, that'll of course win the heart of any queen, right? Yeah. <laughs> Give them a tumbling monkey and a spitting snake. <laughs> and a spitting cobra, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, show differences. Oh, well, I think in this chapter, Karth's pol- politics are far more textured than we see in the show. It would have been cool to see the the what is, the the Hall of a Thousand Thrones. That would have been pretty cool to see in the show. Uh, they basically turn it into like a glorified boardroom in the show. <laughs> and then 
in the show we get the little detail about the dragons not eating. Dracarys. Dracarys. <laughs> He'll be able to feed himself from now on. The, certainly the Quaith prophecy is spread out over a couple chapters. Um, I can't remember if the show gives the full, if the television show gives the full prophecy or not. And that little detail about Danny needs to go to Ashai. And, the, and why, why should I go to Ashai? Am I going to find an army there? And what Quaith says is you'll find the truth. And I wonder if that is related to how to train your dragons. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I, I've, I've always wondered, you know, no, number one, what does this portend for the rest of the series? If she still has to keep going, uh, you know, going, uh, go, going further and further away from Westeros. One theory is, is that she'll go around the world and come from the other, the other side. <laughs> You know, um, come to Westeros from the West. Yes. <laughs> to go East, you must go West. You know, that, that whole, uh-huh. that whole, uh, thing, but you know, and maybe land in old town and end up being crowned in King's Landing. I'm not sure, but yeah, I've always wondered what is there uh, because, you know, you'll find the truth. Well, the truth, Martin has spent five books taking a, a cudgel to truth, uh, as a concept that has any sort of, you know, so I'm not, I, I think again, this could be a trap perhaps, but, yeah. <laughs> uh, sure. but yeah, um, just a couple of other thoughts. Um, the, the I, I, I wonder if there's a direct reference. Number, number one, there's very few Danny, uh, there's 70 chapters in a clash with Kings. Yeah. We're halfway through. This is the third Danny. Chapter. There's only five Danny chapters. And, and yeah. you know, I mean, clearly there was a pacing issue where he had, uh, you know, it's mostly Starks and Tyrion, uh, with just yeah. a few other chapters. Uh, Theon gets six, Davos gets three, Crescent gets one. I mean, it's, it's mostly, he's really having to tell the Stark, diaspora and the ascendancy of Tyrion uh Tyrion Lannister and and Danny really doesn't do a lot in in this entire book um but in the chapters there I think there Danny chapters is where we do get a reference to Dune to bring it back to uh where we started with the discussion of uh, uh Dennis oh. Villanueva's Dune you know the the, the staining of the the uh, the blue lips of the right. warlocks, I think is a, is a direct reference to the uh, mentats of Dune and the, the fact that their lips are stained red because they, in order to increase their analytic abilities, they 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 drink a some sort of spice potion. Right, and Doxa says that there's a saying that you can never trust blue lips or something like that. Yes, that it, it, it's it's sort of uh, it's been around for thousands of years and has created its own mythology. Uh, and I, I think that's how you know a mentat uh, uh, when you see one. Uh, you, you know, that's why mentats, you know, they can't send one undercover because everyone will know it's a mentat. You know, <laughs> so they have to they they have to they have to break Doctor Yui as the you do invent <laughs> lipstick. Yeah, or there you go. Right, yeah. As soon as someone invents lipstick, we can send these uh, mentats undercover. <laughs> yeah. All right, I felt like this chapter establishes Danny 
as her own political mover. Like she's already kind of made a few decisions. Like I'm going to follow the comet, right? So like she's a leader, but she's in a position where she does not trust anyone. Even Jora. She thinks, well, he, I know what he's motivated by. He wants, he wants me for himself. And so, of course, he's going to want to get me away from the city. Of course, he's not going to want me to accept a marriage proposal. Um, so even the people that she needs to listen to, like Quaith, she can't fully trust. And that is absolutely the political lesson that someone like Tyrion knows really well. It's like you, you've got to be able to get information from people and then interpret it, then figure out what to do with it. You don't necessarily take the information at face value. That's what a, that's what someone who's politically savvy does. And she's starting to to do that here in Karth. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I can't remember if it's this chapter or I read the other Danny chapters as well. So everything's kind of you know flowing together in my mind. But at some point she says, oh, what did Liesa Hightower look like? And he said, well, she kind of looked like you. That's right. uh, and so all of a sudden she realizes, okay, you know, uh, he's viewing me sexually. Uh, you yeah, know, that was, the, I think that uh, was the second chapter. The second chapter, maybe. Yeah. You know, that it, it's not just a sort of a avuncular figure. Uh, it's an avuncular figure with uh, these sexualized overtones. Uh, but yeah, I think, I think, you know, she's learning to play the game a little bit. Uh, obviously it's very demeaning for her to go around wearing a collar the way she has to dress when she's in public and card. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, she does, she does that later in Marine. Um, you know, she sort of goes against her instinct to uh, pay um, at least lip service to local custom, opening the fighting pits, marrying uh, yeah. a, a local Miranese. You know, this is sort of the start of, of, uh, I mean, the, the, when she when she dressed herself in Dothraki leathers, it was as much about the ease and comfort of riding a horse as it was mm-hmm. a symbol to the Dothraki people. You know, um, now it's purely about you know maximizing her position within this unfamiliar society. Right. And what currency does she have? Basically, the currency she ha- she has with the Dothraki is that they've seen her do something miraculous. Yes. She has no currency in Karth because the only value that she, the only bit of currency that she has is that she's got these dragons, which she's not willing to sell. As you pointed out earlier, you know, there's the the uh, sort of references back to her brother sort of being the beggar, beggar king. Yeah, Viserys, she, yeah, the beggar king. Well, she's in one sense become a beggar queen, uh, yeah. reliant upon the kindness of 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 strangers uh, to to quote uh, Tennessee Williams you know i think she's starting to realize that that uh, she she needs to keep playing the game long enough for her dragons to transition over from being an exotic sideshow to being fearsome and having other political applications military well, pl- political applications right and i guess the only, the other bit of power that she has is her body you know in mm-hmm. in a mm-hmm. As a woman in a medieval context, she could choose to marry, and she could u- choose to marry a man with wealth, and so that is the that is one political move that she's considering in this chapter. Yeah, yeah. Andrew, thank you for your time today. 
Absolutely. It's a, it's a pleasure as always. And uh, it's, uh, it's always a good day when you can uh, really delve into the uh, Martin's text. All right, man. Uh, have a great day. Okay. Take care. Even with these lies that there's almost a little kernel of truth to them, I just was reading a Arya chapter, and there was a guy in one of her cells. She's, like, captured right before she goes to Harrenhal, and there's prisoners around her. And one of the prisoners was sort of longing for the days when kings were kings. <laughs> and someone says, oh, so you, you wish that Robert was still king? He says, no, Viserys. Or no, no, not Viserys. Um, Eris. He says... Oh, man, those were the days. So, I mean, there is, you know, there is sort of a sentiment among the common folks, some common folks, that might welcome a, a Targaryen because that's that's the way it always was before Robert Baratheon. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reality is, is like, yeah, even if there are a smattering of those people around, what wins the day is not the love of the people. Yeah. So even though it's there's a kernel of truth to it, like there are, there, it's not totally not true that there are people in Westeros that would welcome her with open arms. It's certainly not enough, right? Right, right. Like when she tries to hire people to run her ships, and she makes again this comment: there are many people in Essos. Uh, who are loyal to my family. And Jorah again has to say, I think it's Jorah who says, they don't care anything about your family. Yeah. <laughs> um, all they care about is feeding themselves okay. and surviving. Right. So if you want people for your ships, you have to pay them. We don't have the money. Mm-hmm. So it, it's often this conversation about, let me just kind of remind you that yes, ideals great, but really when it comes to the practical matters, People will put that first every mm-hmm, time. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, these stories we always hear about people who go to Congress for the first time. They have all of these. They think it's going to be, you know, Mr. Smith goes to yeah, Washington. Right. They have these great ideals. And they realize, wow, these people are corrupt. Uh, wow, they only care about themselves. They only really care about getting reelected. I had no idea it was this bad. Um, and not to be all cynical. Yeah, um, I, but that's that's politics. I, I think. And I think that there's something about that. I mean, I think that that probably is the domineering truth. But I, I'm just thinking, like, there is a part of the narrative that matters in the sense that, like, um, uh, who was the who was the head of the Kingsguard? Um, Selmy. Yeah, Barristan Selmy. He's left. He's he's been sent away from the capital. Renly thinks he might show up, so he's kind of been holding a cloak, <laughs> a rainbow cloak, for oh, Selmy. And he's he doesn't show up, and everyone's kind of wondering what ha- what happened to Selmy. the The truth is, he's on his way to ally with the last living Targaryen. So for him, again, yeah. and he's not sort of a naive common folk, uh, you know, representative. He he was the the leader of the Kingsguard. For him, the narrative matters. Yeah. For him, it's like, and- I don't care if this girl has no chance of winning. I got a few years left, and I got a bit of fight in me. I'm going to fight for the rightful heir to the throne. Mm-hmm. 
So I think I think that they're kind of both right. I think Jorah's probably right to be cynical. I think that Danny's kind of right to think, you know, my name does matter, and uh, and there are people that will, um, you know, that will embrace me. Uh, neither one of them has the the total right of it, but they both kind of have a a, a bit of a, a bit of truth on their side. I think that's right. That. You know, and Selmy, who probably should know better, given that he served under the Mad King. <laughs> right. Um, there, I think there is that just willful ignorance, and I don't mean ignorance in, as in he's he's not smart, but this idea of I am so desperate for something genuine. Mm-hmm. I am so desperate for restored honor, and and something that we have. I mean, Robert was a terrible king. Mm-hmm. Everybody knew that. Um, Going back to traditions and and the way things used to be, that kind of nostalgic longing is very understandable. And then you even have, you know, later on people like Tyrion and Varys who say, I'm going to throw my weight behind this person. I think she could be different. You know, I think that she could represent not only a restored tradition, but take us in new directions and really work for the people. Mm -hmm. You know, Varys is the people's man. Um, So that's understandable. So you're right. And I think, you know, Danny is, is definitely onto something. So it's that combination of both, you know, her early idealism, but also just, you know, she gets to Marine and she realizes it's not just inspiring people. Look at what happened to the two previous, you know, cities I freed and they're yeah. right back to the old system. Right. It takes hard work of governing. <laughs> I can't just float through these areas and say, here I am with my dragons and everything will be great. Mm-hmm. It's hard, hard everyday work and negotiation. Um, and so then we, you know, we get this pause in Marine where she learns even even greater lessons than she did before. Mm-hmm. 